Welcome to the Girls in Podcast, where we are on episode nine and we have a huge guest on the show today. Also, a complete side note, we are officially live in the world of iTunes, so you can actually download all our podcasts uh, there. Anyway, today's guest kind of caught my attention when I was reading the Forbes 30 under 30 list for media, which is wow to say the least, so I had to reach out. She's an ambassador and winner of Women of Future, which is a great initiative that you should definitely go and check out as well. She's actually uh, written for Headline Press and corporations in London and actually set up her own blog called Avid Scribbler, which you should definitely go and follow. Um, It's on WordPress. So this individual today, I hope, will enlighten me when it comes to her kind of startup story and her passion for identity, I suppose. So without further ado, welcome Chaya onto the show. How are you, Chaya? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's it's so nice. Thank you. Oh, bless you. No, no worries. I think um I think for everyone kind of who's listening, it'd be really cool to just give you can give your own sort of introduction of your sort of journey where you started, um, and to where you are now, really. So yeah, I'd be really interested to hear about that. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, well, <laughs> I was born in Southeast London, um, so I'm proper Londoner you know through and through um and my childhood was pretty much like I think a lot of other British Asian children whose parents came over either from East Africa or from the subcontinent um so my dad and my paternal grandpa my dad they came to the UK in the 80s after a well after a military coup in Kenya Nairobi where they lost everything and um they came to the UK to basically create a better life for themselves so my childhood was yeah, it was it was what it was. I mean, my dad and obviously my grandparents owned a news agent, so that meant a childhood above a sweet shop, which is I think is every kid's dream. To be honest with you, it's no surprise that my dentist was so annoyed with my parents every time we went. <laughs> and I remember the outrage when uh, my dad sold the shop, and I had to go into a shop for the first time, still as a kid, and I realised I had to actually pay for my sweets. So. I feel like that was a bit of a rude awakening as a child, you know, oh, we don't get free sweets anymore. <laughs> um, so, I mean, like, you know, it was okay growing up. I mean, um, I went through, you know, my fair share of knocks as a kid, you know, like bullying and um, things that went on at home and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until I was kind of in my teens that quite a major event happened. My parents separated right. and it was my mum who left the family home. And what happened was then was, well, my father and my grandma, his mum, ended up raising me. Well, raising me. So I've basically been brought up by my father and my daddy ma. And that's been for the last well over a decade now. And even while I was growing up, I just, you know, I obviously, you know, you mentioned the whole thing about doctors and engineers. And sure. these are very, very common careers within a lot of um, South Asian families and individuals. Not to knock it, of course. I mean, they're fantastic careers, but they're not for everybody and I remember growing up in a family environment where I think most of my cousins were really maths orientated they were very sciencey and but the thing with me was that I was neither of those things I mean when I was little I used to write stories I used to read books I did drawings I was always doing something creative so when it got to my teen my teenage years I just thought oh my god what am I going to do with my life I don't like maths or science and I don't understand any of it and no one in my family up until that point had thought of, you know, doing a career in communications or 
you know, humanities or anything creative, let alone media. So to be honest, in this generation of my family, I am the only journalist. And, you know, I've, I mean, you know, looking back at it all, I've just, I guess I've sort of been the first person in my entire family to go down this path. And I mean, it, it came with a lot of obstacles in the beginning. I mean, um, my family didn't know anybody who was a journalist so they couldn't go to their family friends and ask you know oh hey do you know what this career is about what's the success rate like and that sort of thing and also because you know no one in my family had done it before they couldn't even go to a relative and ask them you know what does this career involve Mm. so the way it all kind of panned out was you know actually when I look back on it in hindsight it's a little bit um, rebellious what I did yeah. so I was in sixth form and the subjects that I took were English literature Spanish and economics and biology I did the economics and biology to make my dad happy to be very honest <laughs> with you because I thought well let's just do this to like you know satisfy the science like loves in my family um, and I was supposed to go study law at university but the thing is with my parents divorced um, I hadn't developed a very good opinion of lawyers. I think I just was so young and I didn't have a great experience of any of them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my family were obviously like, oh, we're going to have another lawyer in the family. This is amazing. <laughs> but the thing is, I was so miserable the entire time. Oh, and I remember being at school and, yeah, it was just one of those things. I was like, oh, my God, how do I get out of this spot? And um, I went to my English literature teacher and she just said, Chaya, why are you applying for this degree do you actually want to do it and you know what it sounds I think to anybody you know listening to this it sounds rather odd to say this but I hadn't thought about what I wanted to do I've been so busy listening to what you know people saying that I should do or what I needed to do or what would be good on the surface but I hadn't actually done any introspection and thought actually what do I want to do what am I good at Mm. and my teacher just said have you considered doing English literature as a degree and the first thing I thought was oh wow I would love to do that but then it was followed by oh my god what is my dad and my family gonna say yeah. <laughs> um yeah it, it was you know I think when you grow up in a culture where you know I think especially as an Asian girl you're expected to conform to all the cultural um requirements and you know almost like these unspoken standards of how you know, Asian boys and girls should behave to be the good samskari butcha, you know. Um, <laughs> I think everybody has, has experienced that at one point. And I remember I rang up the UCAS and I said, listen, I want to change my degree from law to English literature. Is that allowed? And they basically said, no, but if you call out the universities you've applied for, they can change it for you. So I rang up all of them and they all agreed to change it. And then, you know, I did my exam, results came and I you know, I got a place at uni to study um, English literature. And I said to my dad, I was like, oh, dad, look, I've got a place. And he said, oh, that's wonderful. I said, I'm going to be doing English literature. And that was it. He just looked at me and he just said, I thought you were doing law. And I thought, um, but, you know, I mean, it's it's taken a while for my family to come around because it's so new. And Mm. also they were very, very worried because I think the thing is, is that, you know, because we often joke about how, you know, there's so many Asian doctors. If you go to a wedding and someone faints, you don't even need to go to hospital because there will be a doctor of some sort on standby to help you. Yeah. And But the thing with that is that these careers, they give, I think, our parents and our grandparents a sense of security because they know this is a career that works. This is a career that brings financial and social and economic stability to lives. You do something in the creative sector, that's like going into a completely dark room with a blindfold on. Yeah, completely. So that's um, mm, mm, totally. And I, 
I get that that anxiety. I think when I was younger, I thought it was a bit excessive, but obviously now that I've grown up a bit, I can I can totally see why my dad and my grandma was so so worried, poor things about what I was doing. Um, so that's how I ended up doing my degree. And with journalism, I just I've always loved to write. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. I guess when I was a child, I used to write because it gave me quite a safe emotional space to be in when I was growing up. Yeah. And I used to think, oh, I'd love to be a writer one day. I loved the whole thing. You see, I grew up when Harry Potter <laughs> kind of came out and I grew up with the books as they went along. So, yeah. you know, even JK Rowling, how she is as well is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously I got the response of no better. There is no money in writing. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> um, let's see what else I can do. And I did a bit of work experience in a local for a local newspaper. And I loved it so much that two years later, I just, I went back and I was writing articles on a voluntary basis and it literally just went from there. I mean, like, obviously when I was at uni, I wrote for my university's newspaper. I started up the blog, Abbey Scribbler, as you mentioned, and it just went from there. And to be honest, I look back on the last seven to eight years and I just think, wow, so much has changed. Um, I mean, even the time of this podcast is so timely because you've caught me on like a kind of cusp in. Um, my career you know professionally and also my personal life as well where things are just they've just come to such a head that I'm almost just you know sitting here like how has somebody like me from southeast London managed to do all of this um, so I mean you know sorry yes yeah no that that's it's just amazing to hear someone's story and like for you to say that as well that you, you kind of think you wouldn't think that your life would pan out like that but now you're at a head where you're actually I think you're influencing kind of females and and what they're doing in their life and and I suppose giving them that sort of power but even like kids for example like I had someone on the podcast a couple of weeks ago who was also um mm. they, they went into like radio and media and it was they're from an Asian background as well and they literally said the similar thing like they, she was the first one to do that in her f- household and it was just it was like okay we don't know how to help you with this but we can put you in touch with like a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer and she's like no I don't want to do that mm. like, I, I want to be a um I want to go into radio presenting so it's this whole idea of how do you now change your mentality that actually you can make a living out of this I was also listening to something really important which was we mm. live in generations now in the future where actually we won't be like I'd say like my younger brother and sister generation they won't be looking for jobs which are going to make them money but they want that balance of my life is good and my job is good they're, they, they're not going to yeah. fight the okay I must climb that corporate ladder because I think I think the generation below us are too smart for that they, they they're not going to go they're not going to say I want to climb the corporate ladder because I think it's just such a load of shit to be honest if I if <laughs> I, I went came from the corporate world and I thought it was rubbish like mm. it's it's put it's put in kind of lights to say that it will get to get you where you need to be but actually it doesn't so that's why I kind of switched to the startup world and it's so much more kind of rewarding oh. in um so yeah I bet you're enjoying it a lot more as well yeah definitely it's it, it's a lot more satisfying to say the least which is what you want from your your job or career which is mm. really good so yeah um mm-hmm. I suppose if we're moving on um let's talk about like experiences which have stood out to you because I was looking for your blog and you write about kind of numerous topics which I found I find all of those sort of topics <laughs> drug, so much <laughs> yeah culture it's all stuff which is like on the surface of say I think here in the UK but I think we live a very sheltered life to say the least here in the UK yet when you come out 
um, I don't know if you like if you like travel or or just watching another news channel outside of BBC and Sky News, you kind of see that the world isn't as great as the BBC make out it is to be. Um, I suppose it'd be good to know, like, what grabs you as a writer? Like, what topics do you enjoy writing about um, the most? I think um, when it comes to writing itself, you have to. I think it, it takes several things, I guess, to, to be. I mean, I, I don't want to say the word effective because that's so subjective. Or to be an effective writer, to someone may not be effective to you or me, for example. Sure. But I think what makes the work of a writer feel timeless is if they're, if I think it's how attuned they are, to their environment, to people, to themselves, and what's going on. Like, I think a lot of the experiences that I wrote about in the blog, it it literally stems from growing up in a post 9/11 world. And when I was um, obviously growing up in the 90s, you know, you, you started to get this like very steady ebb and flow of British Asian actors. So you had, you know, you've had the whole Goodness Gracious Me, yeah. you know, you've had the whole, um, you know, Anita and Me style films and everything. But the thing is, if you look at, I'd say, our generation and younger, how much of that can we relate to? Mm-hmm. And the answer is probably in patches, to be honest. And what I noticed was that there wasn't really anybody talking about the impact of 9-11 on South Asian identity. I mean, we understand, I think, now in hindsight, looking back, you know, on the, obviously the years that followed in, in the wake of such a, you know, a tragic event. And people don't realize, I think, the impact it's had on anybody who's got brown skin and dark hair. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really wanted to capture, because whenever I read a, a book, whether it's, say, from the Victorian era, or if it's from, like, you know, a period of colonization in India or East Africa, there is something very timeless about it. You feel like you're there in the moment when you read the book. And that's a sign of a writer who is so attuned with what is going on that when you open the pages of their book, you feel like an invisible person in those scenes. Obviously, no one can see you in the yeah. plot line, but um, you're there. You're there in the moment. And I just think it's, it's a major social event that has affected millions upon millions of people. And that impact, I feel like it's not been fully explored or documented, let alone explore the impact it's had on a lot of um, individuals, whether that's psychologically or emotionally. And I think many people are missing a trick to not see the impact that it's had on, you know, a lot of young people, whether they're, you know, of South American origin, they're mixed race, or they're, you know, of Middle Eastern heritage, or anywhere from across Asia and South Asia. It's had a huge impact on how we look at ourselves, how we, you know, regard ourselves in the back backdrop of our heritages and also it affects the way that we rise up to meet the world and in turn how the world rises up to meet us and I think that's something that previous generations haven't had to I think deal with mm. not in the way that I think this generation has had to because I think for a lot of kids who grew up in the 90s that's when this whole multiculturalism thing was coming into place and I remember that very vividly because there was lots of you know, very positive, happy stories about how, you know, kids are going to have friends of every colour, yeah. you know, they're going to be the first generation to grow up without racism, but then obviously, you know, things like Stephen Lawrence happened that that just started to shake the dream a little bit. But then, you know, what happened in 2001, that just completely changed the game. And also, it, it's really changed, I think, how a lot of, like, I say South Asians individually identify as, as brown people moving in the world. And it's so important that we we acknowledge that and that we write about it because you know I mean you spoke about like your younger siblings as well I've got younger siblings too and I just think you know 
it's very important that when they look up to the of the previous generation in terms of literature documentation that they can understand how much things have shifted say from the 70s mm. to basically now yeah yeah no I agree I think what's important as well is I'll, I'll go back to the point of post 9-11 but just on that point mm. I think it was it I was also born in the 90s and I mean I was the only Indian kid in my class and and it was like a great time oh, yeah. like you, you live in a world where actually you have yeah um kind of a white society suddenly welcoming you in and mm. grandparents obviously came from uh, India and my parents were born here mm. and like my dad lived in Coventry during the 70s and he had suffered like really bad racism at school and then you have 20 years yeah, later yeah, when his daughter goes to school it's it's all fine but actually not when my siblings go back to school kind of now um they're 16 and 17 mm. they've actually had racism and I think that is actually down to this whole idea around post 9-11 I mean just a question to you what do you think are the biggest effects on to South Asian women of post 9-11? I think what's highlighted is that you know this whole I think um idea that a lot of us were fed that you know you can you can pick and choose and live a life with nuance as a person of color has completely been busted you know it brings back the whole theory of you know women of color having to face several social yokes so to speak when they move through a western society or even you know let's take it even back even wider even back to asian and eastern countries as well i mean when i talk about the yokes i mean i think in the in the west like you know being british asian and things like that yeah. you have this idea of you know well one yoke is racism and that kind of it goes two ways depending on how an individual south asian is and what i mean by that is you know you get subtle racism from the mainstream society but there's also a lot of internalized racism within many south asian communities mm. and that ranges from things from colorism to thinking that you know punjabis are the best or you know yeah. thinking or having you know, very negative views about South Indians. I'm very shocked about some of the things I hear because I just think, come on, guys, we're we're basically from one massive country, which is like a quilt of so many cultures. Let's just, you know, we we've got to stand together, basically. And you know, and if you bring it, say, you know, take it a wider lens. So you take it from like a subjective racial, you know, perspective to something such as economic poverty. That's another yoke that you carry. And then the third one is obviously misogyny. And again, that comes from widestream society, but a lot of it also comes from our own communities too. And I mean, there's so many 